You're listening to Talk to Tall. This is Talia. I have helped people in varying capacities, whether it was how to get divorced, how to come out of the closet, how to feel better in my own skin, start a new career, move across the country, move across the world, working on their addiction, how to be honest. It's very easy to lie to ourselves. I like to say the truth is erotic. Let me help you find yours. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Talk to Tall. I'm very excited today. I have a special guest that's going to help me host a couple questions we have. Um, Her name is Pam and she is a therapist. So I would like to let her do a little bit of an intro and tell us a little bit about herself. She's also an artist, a painter. So uh, take it away, Pam. Okay. When I take it away, usually I will go all over the place and talk too much. That's so fine. I thought to myself, how can I organize it so I don't do that? And then I thought, okay, one of the great things I learned in getting older is that it's very important to create pockets of joy in your life. And so I thought that's a way to organize talking about myself because I've created pockets of joy. One pocket of joy that I've created is as director of counseling at a college where I was worked for 37 years, I created these incredible programs for students that were very creative, very different. And that was a great pocket of joy and repeatedly. Then another great pocket of joy is making art, which I discovered later in life because I wasn't trained as an artist. And I discovered accidentally when my daughter was painting, drawing on the ground at seven, and I just started doodling. In any case, I I love painting, and I'm zoned out, and that's a great bucket of joy. And then finally, not finally, but another area that where I've created a pocket of joy is in uh, my work with my patients. I'm a licensed psychologist. Um, I've been practicing for over 40 years, but it's small. It's only about between eight and five people. But the pocket of joy is when I really connect with a patient. And that is a great pocket of joy. And that happens more frequently than not. And two others. One is, this might sound weird, but... Uh, when I connect to babies and young children and I walk around a park nearby um, six days a week for about three miles, I see a lot of babies and children. And we lock eyes, some don't, but sometimes when I do, and smile and sometimes even say something if they can speak. And that is wonderful because babies and children have what many of us have lost, and that is openness and responsiveness, and that's so important to me. And of course, I don't know if it's the last pocket of joy, but the intimate interactions with very special people in my life. And um, that's a little about me. God, that's beautiful. And that was short. Go ahead. That was short. 
<laughs> That's so beautiful. I mean, I think I'm going to take that pocket of joy. It's very, it's very hard to, when you are moving around life, moving around New York, you're, you're, you're going at a specific pace. You're trying to get from this point to this point to really notice those things. Um, I love that you mentioned children. I, I want to tell you a quick little story. Um, my father has um, a finance guy in Eugene, Oregon, um, and he, for some reason, I, I started meeting with him and talking to him over the phone, even though I live in New York, and his wife came to the city with their three children yesterday, and I've never met the wife. She didn't really know how I knew her husband, and um she had these three children and they were so precious and we got caught in a rainstorm. So I took them to the American doll store, you know, in Midtown in the car. And I had the best time in the car with these kids. We were singing and the mother said, you are, you do such a great job with children. It's incredible. And I thought, I feel like I'm those little people. I can connect to them in a, in a way that, uh, I connect to people, but especially little people. They're, they're so intuitive and they're like you say, they're just free non-judgment. So thank you for bringing that up. I, um, I have a lot of questions that I get frequently from callers about therapy. And I, I wanted to ask you a couple things. Um, and I know you're, um, have a lot of experience in it. Um, how, when someone decides that they want to go to therapy, you know, um, in my own personal experience, I've been in therapy off and on my, probably for the last 40 years of my life. Um, because I always think there's something deeper to learn about myself, maybe the way I react to things and my emotional center. But when people come to see you, is it usually because they've reached a crossroad where they want to discover something, they want to get through some situation, they're having marital issues, they're whatever the case is, is there one thing that really draws people to therapy? And how do you go about Okay, I want to know all about that. Always. It's because people are suffering. Always. They are feeling discomfort and they are suffering on some level. People don't go to therapy because they think, oh, what should I do with Thursday afternoon? Or how can I spend my money? <laughs> but rather, they're suffering. Everyone. I mean, and so it's not, they might be at a crossroads. It might be all of the things you mentioned but it's bothering them and causing them uh, some kind of level of agita. And so that's what brings people to therapy. Wow. And um, I know there's all types of therapists. Sorry. Did you find that when you went to therapy? Uh, yes. And I'm currently in therapy. Yes. I, I sort of, of, I'm of this type of situation. I'll explain a little bit about my personal life. I feel like I've always been suffering in a way. I had um, a difficult upbringing. I had a big uh, drug addiction for a long time. Then I got sober. Um, and I've, I, I think I've always had this empty pit inside of me of loneliness. And I tried to fill it with various things. And I think I'm doing better uh, in what I now perceive as, you know, trying to they call it the God-sized hole, but um, I, I noticed that it feels like a just an in, 
internal loneliness all the time. And, um, it's more, it's a, it's a louder noise when I'm single and when I'm with someone, it's not as loud, but it's, it's always there. And I, it's funny that you were talking about the children because I think children and animals really help, uh, alleviate some of that pressure. I think because as you said, they're non-judgmental mm-hmm. because they're responsive Mm-hmm. I mean, because they're not all intellectual and academic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you didn't. Um, you can interject at any point. Um, so I, I like that you say that. I mean, the Buddhists think that everyone is always suffering. There's always an element of suffering in this life. What, what do you think about that? I don't think people are always suffering at all because I just spoke about how I create pockets of joy and I'm not suffering then. If you mean that there's suffering in a person's life, absolutely. Absolutely. You couldn't have the joys unless unless you had the pain. One doesn't one one goes with the other. Your life if your life is flat, then that's the worst. Yeah. Uh yes, I there's suffering in life, but not all the time, not at all. Yeah. That's why I, that's why I do my work to to reduce it immensely. Right. And why did you want to become a therapist? Good question. Probably I don't like the word therapist by the way. <laughs> um, I think I don't like it because it to me it means anyone anyone can say I'm a therapist. And I think it's essential that you have that a person has training in the area because you're playing around with people's psyches. And that is something very precious. Mm-hmm. So that's why I don't like the word therapist. Um, I decided to become, well, okay. I decided I had degrees in English. I had a master's in English and I said, I don't like, I love English, but I don't want to work in English. And I was in therapy. I said, whoa, that's a cool thing. Maybe I I want to understand more about how people work. And I think part of me did want to be clinician. Um, But when I started my doctoral program, I did not think that I wanted to be a therapist. I thought, no, I did. I did. But I also wanted to learn a lot about people. And boy, did I learn a lot. I mean, things that I didn't even want to learn. For example, you have to learn about um, neurology. You have to learn about statistics. You have to learn research. To be licensed, you have to learn all different things that... I understand they're valuable. I didn't enjoy it, but so I learned a lot. Um, Increasingly, I wanted to be a clinician because I felt that my person that I saw was very good and she helped me tremendously. And I wanted to be able to do that for others. Wow. 
That's beautiful. Um, and then another thing I want to tell you about this experience I had, um, I had this therapist. It's interesting the way we select or maybe the way we attract people to us at certain stages in our, our life. Uh, and there was a, a stage in particular where I wasn't that close with my parents and I felt like I needed a father figure. I needed a Jewish, you know, middle-aged guy who could help sort of parent me a little bit. And, um, I went to him for probably 10 years. One day I was sitting in the chair and I said, Oh my God, have I been saying this for 10 years? It was, it was, it was like a clap of thunder just went off in my head. And he said, yeah, you have. And I said, Oh my God, <laughs> does everyone do that? <laughs> so he said, yeah, they do. And then I shared that in a meeting once and someone raised their hand. They go, I'm a therapist. And yes, they do. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, um, do you find that sometimes the psychology of the way the mind or the habits or the childhood um, work is that we can't, we can't, we get stuck and we can't keep, we just keep repeating the same. Do you think, do you find that that's part of what happens in therapy? Because I noticed for many years, I was saying the exact same thing every hour to this man. You know, what is that? Did he tell you? Did he tell you he was saying the same thing or he just let you do it? He let me do it until I said, have I been saying this all the time? And he said, yeah, you have. And I said, oh, wow. my God. Well, I'm certainly not going to pay $400 an hour to repeat myself. <laughs> oh, you didn't pay 400 did you? Uh, I think he gave me a deal. The thing about him is what I really needed from him, and this makes me think about what you how you started, is that I really needed love. And, um, that's also a very big theme in my process in life. And so I try to collect love to every little area of my life. And so this relationship I had with him, my therapist was a social connection. I got to leave, you know, work or my apartment and go to his office and sit there. And then it also felt like love. And, um, I learned so much from him and I stopped seeing him during when the pandemic started and I miss him so much, but I know that we had sort of reached our point together. Um, do you have clients that you feel a maternal, um, love for? I mean, I know you can't really say that as a, as a, someone in your profession, but you have, you must have an emotional feeling towards them, if, especially if they've been with you for many years. I have an emotional feeling to everyone I see. I can't not. Is it maternal to everyone? Absolutely not. Um, but I I care about them. Um, once, twice, actually, and I've been doing this for 43 years. Um, I was seeing people that I really didn't like, and I could not continue, professionally, ethically, continue seeing them. And it was difficult referring them out, and I, I but I did, uh, because it wasn't fair to them, and it wasn't good for me, but it mostly wasn't fair to them. Mm -hmm. uh, the other people, I care about. I care about all of them but it's not maternal. I have felt 
maternal towards some of them. Um, I have felt very close to a lot of them. I went to three weddings. I was invited. This was after the fact. I wasn't still seeing them. Um, yes, I have feelings toward everyone I see, mm -hmm. but not maternal. Uh, but they're, they're positive, yeah. except for those two negative. Yeah. But I saw a lot of people. The, the people that you stopped seeing that you referred out, was it because you knew you couldn't help them? Or what? can you elaborate a little on that? Yes. One, he was, the old word is psychotic. We don't use that word anymore. He was very disturbed. His, his thought processes were disturbed. And he sometimes he used words that I knew didn't make sense. And I was in supervision at the time because I have a postdoctoral degree in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. And so part of that was being supervised. And I would say to my supervisor, what do I do? What do I do? I don't understand what he's talking about. He said, you can continue seeing him. Do you think you can? I said, no. So I couldn't see him because I, part of the time, I had no idea what he was saying. And I didn't see him very long. The other person I saw longer, and she, you know, this goes back 20 years ago. Um, she was very annoying. Mm. I have to say that. Yeah. She was really off-putting. She had an off-putting personality. And I thought to myself, I can't see someone who annoys me. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. And so I referred her out fairly soon after a few months. Yeah. But but I I don't even know how many people I've seen. Some for a very short period of time because it doesn't work. We don't connect or whatever happens. But many of them for at least um, four or five months. Because I think less than four or five months, you really can't work on things. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough time to work on things. Right. And what do you think, I mean, I know there's probably no exact solution or um, equation for this, but how long do you think you can go with a patient as the person that they're seeing professionally? Like, what is the length of time? It was funny because when I shared about that in the, in the meeting, people said to me, you have had your therapist for 10 years. It's time to get a new therapist. And I thought, oh my God, I'm never getting rid of him. I love him, <laughs> you know, but, uh, I realized that for me, I, I knew how he was going to react every time because I had tested every kind of conversation, every relationship, everything I wanted to tell him, and he was going to have the same reaction. So I needed to challenge myself more. So I guess the long, the long uh, version is how long is the average? And then what's the longest time you've seen a patient? I am currently seeing people who I've been seeing for 10 years. Um, it's, we do not go, well, sometimes you revisit the same thing, but it's like a spiral because it's not the same level. They've grown and it's a little bigger, but we don't talk about the same things. We deal with the same issues, 
but we don't talk about the same things, such as um, the ability to not need to please people. Um, that's something that is 10 years worth. Wow. Um, so the answer is no, 10 years is not, I'm seeing people now, I've been seeing for 10 years, but we don't talk. They don't know what I'm going to say. Well, sometimes they know what I'm going to say. <laughs> sometimes they know what I'm going to say. Yeah. I even say, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? <laughs> Yes, I do. Laughing reminds me, and I, I shared that with you, is that humor is essential to me in every part of my life. And it's an, an, an important part of my therapy with patients. Um, and it, 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 I'm not talking about telling jokes. Right. I'm just talking about seeing seeing the absurd the silly whatever and laughing together yeah i think it's very healing too because just looking at you right now you're smiling you're beautiful you're open and i already feel comfortable with whatever i'm going to say to you and and that is such a big part of accessing our own selves cuz Oftentimes I've found that when I'm in therapy, I realize this is a place to totally be myself where someone is sitting here. I mean, I am paying them, but they're sitting here and I, I never don't present who exactly who I am for better or for worse. I just, I want to go there with the notion that this is me. And sometimes it's even to hear myself talking to the therapist, these are the things that come off my chest in the first five or 10 minutes of the session, which I think can, I could tell a lot about myself. If I was taking this, um, from a bird's eye view, I'd say, okay, these are the things, you know, that are important. So, um, you're a perfect I'm sorry to interject, but I want to tell you, you're a perfect patient because many, many people cannot do that. They cannot just go like that and well no one can see this. <laughs> oh, they wow. can't it just doesn't bother. Yeah. It's really hard to get to it. So that's great. Wow. I think I took a while to get there and I think being sober helped, but I know that when I was drinking and using drugs, there's no way I could access anything inside. So when I sat in therapy, I was thinking to myself, this is completely serves no point. And you hear about that a lot. I hear that a lot um, and have with some of my clients that their therapist um, 12 step them. What's another word that I can use instead of therapist that you would like since you don't? Um, well, I use the word clinician, clinician because then it could be psychiatrist, psychologist, or social worker. Okay. I, th I think it's important that the person be licensed. I think that's very important. Absolutely. But it could be but so social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, or clinician. Okay, clinician. That sounds very it sounds it sounds chic. Okay. Well then I go for it. <laughs> um another question that I have for you, just because I'm curious how, you know, 
uh, how Zoom sessions work versus the in-person. Now, for me personally, because um, I'm an introvert, I spend a lot of time by myself, I work for myself, I work alone. The only time I'm really outside of my bubble is when I interact with humans outside of my apartment or out the office. But what do you think is, I, you probably could say that everyone's different, but how do you feel that because we do so much um, work on Zoom, how, how does that change how we are doing our inner work of, our, of the mind? Is it more successful to be sitting next to someone? In my experience, it is because I need a person near me. I need, I need to feel, okay, this therapist is right there or this clinician's right there and she's looking at me and I just can feel her energy. So what do you think about that? Well, I'm going to tell you something right off that, that you're assuming that's not true. I do not do Zoom. Oh, <laughs> I, uh, And I don't go to my office, which is only two blocks away in a beautiful brownstone that I uh, own with the two other psychologists uh, since the pandemic began. And actually most, I'm going to use the word therapist, see, here you go. Uh, most therapists I know don't either. They do they do it from home. Um I don't accept insurance because I don't want to be paid what I was paid 40 years ago. So therefore, the people who are on Zoom have to be because the insurance companies require that. Oh. I do not like it because, and I'm on Zoom with my book club and with other meetings, is I... With you, it's really interesting because you're only one person, so it's so much so much easier. But usually it's little squares there. But even just, I find it distracting. Yeah. Because, and I don't want any distractions. So that's fine for the people who have been seeing me. So they know what I look like and what it's like. Uh, although I, I do want to add to that because I had a conversation with someone about that. Um, I've seen new people. And they've never met me. They know what I look like because uh, Psychology Today has a directory of social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists. Did you know that? Yes, I did. Yes. Did okay, so I'm on there. And so my picture is on there. So they know what I look like. But they do not see me. And I think there have been four of them or five, and uh, they, four of them have never been in therapy before. Wow. So they don't have anything to compare it to. They never bring anything up. I did bring it up with two of the people that I, that I had been seeing. And one said, I thought it would be weird and it'd be difficult, and it's not at all. You're the Pam I know. Yeah. So um, now, if I were to go into therapy now, and I've done about 4 million hours of therapy, I had to, as part of my training, be in analysis, which is defined as three times a week for two years. But before that, I was in therapy. Um, I would want to see the person yeah. first, for a session, and then, then I'm fine. Yeah. But they, it bothered them. And, and the other people... They don't see me. Wow. 
I'm going to jump all over with questions that I, that I get. Um, so somebody wrote and said, why is there a couch and why do people lay down in therapy? What is the purpose of that? Okay. I was trained in both psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Psychoanalysis traditionally, according to Freud, is you lie down, you don't see the therapist. I did do that at the very beginning when I started seeing patients. Um, the point is, is that you don't want them to look at your expression and see your expression because it might affect what they're going to say. You want them to be able to say whatever they're going to say and not feel that they see a disapproving look or an approving look. Or, and so that's the reason. So you don't see. Now, occasionally, before the pandemic, I would have someone lie down, I remember, twice uh, for a little while because she was too into what how I was reacting. So that is the reason why people lie down. So they don't, it's, eat, well, originally, according to Freud, it was to free associate it, but that's, people, I, most people don't do that. So they don't see the reaction of the therapist. So it's easier for them to talk. Wow. But I don't do that anymore. That's incredible. Um, and then I also have been to, maybe they were uh, voodoo, uh, you know, kumbaya therapists that had their offices <laughs> painted. And it was, if, they, if it wasn't white, it was this light lavender color. And they said, this is the color of the therapy world. This is the color of the mind. And I can't tell you how many people that I saw that had this color. Is there anything true to that, w this color? Um, it's like a light purple, lavender, basically, maybe a little lighter than lavender. I've never heard of that. And I have <laughs> many, many friends who have offices and no one has it painted lavender. I never heard of that. Um, Probably kooky West have, Village, just the West Village kooks. <laughs> well, I know a lot of kooks. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I would, I would. I would think that kooks might have red or black or whatever. Yeah. But no, I never heard of it. Oh, wow. And then you sort of lavender. answered. <laughs> I like a smell of lavender. Yeah, very nice. That's another thing I was thinking is, do you use any of the seven senses to access something that might trigger an emotional response or something in the brain to help with what they're processing? Now that's very interesting. The seven senses. We're talking about sight, hearing, touch, smell, smell. What are the other senses? Sight, hearing. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it isn't set. Maybe it's seven C's and not seven senses, but I'll look that up. But the, you don't like, have to look it up. Okay. Do I? Um, I ask people to try and remember certain scenes that they're talking about to get back there. So inherent in that question or request is taking in the sights and smells, but I don't 
emphasize it. Right. The side I do. But from a memory standpoint, you're saying, so you'll say envision yourself, whatever, on Back a pier. That, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yes. Um, it reminds me of EMDR, which I've, you know, the um, process where, what is, how did, tell me, tell our listeners what EMDR stands for. It's eye, eye movement. I can't because I am not trained in it. Okay. I, I shared an office with two other psychologists and one of them did EMDR. Mm-hmm. And when we would meet, we would deal with, you know, sharing the bills for the heating, for the phone, for the this or that. And I don't know. Yeah. So you probably know more than I do about it. Well, I, I know I, a little bit about it. I, I did it for a while. Um, what I find so fascinating about it is it has a cap moment. You can only do it for so long. It's not like you're going to continue on with this therapist and and be doing EMDR every session for four years just as if you and I might do. Um, so it has a certain arc and you get through the things or the traumas that you want to process, you know, the thinking and the feeling receptors of the brain. And you want to learn to feel differently when you're thinking about whatever the trauma was. Um, but in my own personal experience with it, um, I'll tell you what it was like. It's so that you have your, you're wearing your headphones and you're following a little light that's going left to the right and they'll speed up the light based on whatever memory they're taking you through and you have to follow it with both eyes. So you can't focus on anything else and they'll take you through the memory of whatever the experience was and you'll um, start to process how that felt until the therapist sort of guides you into another way to think about it and feel about it. And then eventually when you get to the end of it, it's like such a distant memory that it's so hard to grab onto the memory, even though it might've been really painful, that it just feels so far away and it's hard to access it again. And most of the things that I processed, I, I don't, if I try to think about them, it doesn't come back into my mind. Um, I know they're there, but it's kind of powerful. Um, it so, sounds powerful. Yeah. So um, do you think... I, my training... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I want to hear. My training is in interpersonal psychotherapy. And the focus is on relationships and how people relate to each other. And um, you've heard the term transference, I assume. Yes. No. Yes, definitely. Yes. Too yes, much, okay. I've heard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's a powerful tool because it happens inevitably. And this is for people who are listening who don't know what transference is. It's when you get into a groove, you're seeing the person, the therapist, long enough. Uh, see, I'm saying therapist, not clinician. You see the therapist <laughs> long enough. Um you feel comfortable and you start reacting a typical way you react. Now, very often that way includes um, something about something like the way you reacted to a key or key people in your life in the past. Mm. And so therapist is no longer the therapist, let's say your brother, your mother, 
whatever. And you're aware of it as a therapist because this person is not reacting to me and who, where I am. And I point it out. And so it becomes key because then the patient realizes that they're, wow, they're carrying this around. For example, I used to think my mother's no longer alive, but not think. My mother was extraordinarily controlling. Mm -hmm. And so I reacted to people frequently as they were controlling me. Mm. And so that's that's a key way a very important issue surfaces and you realize um i don't i don't know where see there i go off no that's go good all, all. that's good i want to say has it ever interrupted your ability to do work have did you ever have a client that the transference was so strong on you that they couldn't see past you being their mother or something that had happened to them and you could no longer work with them? Or were they always able to get through that part and realize, oh, she's not my mother? No, always work through it. Wow. Always. That's incredible. And I don't always use transference. Only when, when it, you know, comes up and I don't use it that much um more frequently nowadays people are very concerned with relationships lack of relationships dysfunctional relationships biggie 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 because i've learned in all my years that um everyone comes from some type of dysfunctional family, everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of degree of how dysfunctional it is. And um, and that's another thing I just want to add. When most people, when people come to me for the first time, I'm the first time looking at the first therapist they've seen, they have no idea what their major issues are. They know that they're having anxiety attacks, or they're getting angry at their wife or something that they want to deal with. But they rarely know what the major issues are. That, that takes a while. And the use of dreams. I use dreams because dreams is a key to your unconscious. And I think unconscious is very, very key. I think it's what motivates so much behavior. And um, once you make the unconscious conscious, you have control of it, and it's great. Then you can be rid of it. Wow. Yeah. Does this make sense? Or am I talking too theoretically? No, it's fantastic, and it's actually helping me in so many ways, just, just listening to you speak about that. I have very deep, we're almost out of time, but I, I just wanted to say one thing about dreams. I've never processed any dreams, but I have very visual, um, dreams of things that I think are insight into the future, but perhaps that's not the case based on what you just said. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not, it's not an insight, but it's a memory, an emotional memory of something that's propelling me forward. Is that, what is a dream? Okay. By the way, 
I believe that uh, pe some people have psychic ability, extrasensory, whatever you want to call it. I, I have a good friend who's incredible, and I believe I have a little of it. Uh, so it could be what you just said, something about the future. It could be also what you said, something from the past. And sometimes a rose is a rose is a rose. And frequently a dream is a dream is a dream. And it's a rehashing of whatever you did that day or four days ago. And I'll give you a very short example, is that um, a lot of my work as administrator was running meetings or developing things. For the first five years after I was retired, I didn't dream about it. Now I have so many dreams where I'm creating programs or I'm running meetings, and it's such a goddamn drag. I don't want to do it. <laughs> something I did. So the answer is a dream is sometimes rehashing of something you've done in the past. Sometimes it's a key to something that's bothering you, but it's rarely in its in the form that it is. So it could be that um, it could be a friend of yours, but it's not really your friend. Your friend represents maybe you. Right. Now I'm getting far into dream interpretation. Wow. But the answer is oh, I, I might have cut you off to repeat that last sentence that you said. All dreams are. All dreams. All dreams are many things. There could be a rehashing of what happened the day before that day, right. months ago, what, just plain something that happened. They could be symbolic of what an important issue that is bothering you that you didn't know. For example, it involves fear or someone coming after you and, it have to, and that's an issue that you have. It could involve Abandonment could be representative of abandonment issues. Mm -hmm. um, it could be nothing. <laughs> it could be, what I mean by nothing is just a very pretty visual dream. Yeah, thoughts. Nothing. Yes, exactly. And it could be some premonition, if you have that gift, of, of something that will happen. I, I I dreamt, actually, I was very close to my grandmother, and um, I dreamt that she died. That was my dream, and that night she died. Wow. And my, la and my last husband dreamt that that night, he dreamt his mother was walking with his brother, and she fell down, and she died, just dropped dead. He got a phone call two hours after we woke up. And that's exactly how she died. Wow. I love hearing things so, like that. Yes. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's powerful. Yeah. It's yes, like a little insight into the magic of the divine or what happens to these little bodies we're in, you know, I have loved having you on the show and I would love for you to come back anytime, speak about dreams. We didn't get to your painting, but maybe we will next time. Oh, we didn't. <laughs> no. No, like that. I love that. That's so in my soul. Yes. Uh, well, you'll have to um, uh, come back and chat with us about that because you are a very brilliant woman, and I've very much enjoyed listening to you and talking to you. So please come back and 
speak with us anytime. And thank you for being here. And ditto, 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 ditto. You're very easy, wonderful to talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Have a good day. Thank you, Tom. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Talk Too Tall. If you are feeling like you need help to find your truth, please shoot us an email with your question to talktotalia at gmail.com. It's T-A-L-K, the number two, T-A-L-L-I-A at gmail.com. You'll never know your truth unless you ask for it.